Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. I love all this discussion going on. It's a good thing. Um, hey, welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Longman. Um, a reminder for everybody in the room, we do record these sessions and post them as a, a podcast. So don't say anything you don't want the world to hear. Um, so we will, we're into session three now of this series called A Man Called Martin. Um, we got another video for today and we'll, we'll talk some more about Martin Luther. Kind of setting the stage as we're going to dig into the Book of Concord and what that's all about and uh, look at some of the documents that are in there. Um, before we go there, though, any questions anybody has about anything? You, guys never have a, you should come prepared with a question. <laughs> Nobody does. Um, if you didn't know it, Journeyman did card day yesterday. That was a blast. We had about, I don't know, 50 people? Something like that. Good. Pretty good turnout, and everybody was a winner. That was awesome. Um, to that end, John Jenkins, who supplied most of those gifts, um, has a whole bunch of pet accessory stuff that he's donated from his company, and there's, the leftovers are in the Life Center. So if you have a pet and you want any of that stuff, help yourself. It's all free for the taking. Um, what else is going on? Uh, I don't know. Um, this week, um, any of you, how many of you have ever watched the live stream of the service? when you've been sick or something like that or haven't been able to? Yeah, yeah. Several of you have. Okay. This week, um, we are installing major upgrades to the whole AV system. Um, so we've got new cameras, we've got new microphones, new equipment to control all of that. It should um, take that whole live stream to a much higher level. Um, among other things, we'll actually have the ability to like move the cameras around and zoom in and stuff. And that should make it a lot better. So you know, when you're watching me preach or you're watching the lecture, you're not looking at like, that guy way up there. You'll actually get to see my face, which is kind of cool. So that's Thursday and Friday. So if you, for whatever reason, are trying to watch it this weekend, be patient with us because it'll be new stuff that we got to figure out. Um, I think that's it in terms of stuff going on. Keep the call team in your prayers. We, we have... We had one interview last week. We have um, hopefully another interview this week. We've got another candidate that we're looking at. Um, and that process is moving forward. God is doing his thing there. So just keep the call team in your prayers as they continue that work. Hopefully in the near future we'll have a candidate to put in front of you to vote about a call, which would be great. Um, anything else? Questions about anything? All right. Let's begin with a devotion. Um, today's is from John chapter 6, uh, verses 28 and 29. The people asked Jesus, what does God want us to do? And Jesus replied to them, God wants to do something for you so that you believe in the one whom he has sent. And the title of this is Faith Comes from God. The entire Bible agrees on what it means to serve God. Scripture firmly establishes that if you want to serve him, you must believe in the one whom the Father has sent. If you want to know how to receive God's kindness, how to approach him, how to satisfy the penalty for your sins, how to receive forgiveness of sin and escape death, you must do what God wants and believe in Christ. Here, Christ is plainly telling you what you should do. Believe. Faith is the work we must do, and yet faith is also called God's work. Later, Christ tells us how we're able to believe, for no one can believe on his own. People cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me brings them to me. John chapter 6, verse 44. 
He also says, people cannot come to me unless the Father provides the way, John 6, 65. Faith is a divine work that God's at, that God asks us to do, but at the same time, God must give us faith for we cannot believe on our own. What an excellent passage this is, like a lightning bolt. It strikes down all wisdom and righteousness, every law and commandment, even the law of Moses. It lays before us a different work, a work that is above and beyond us. We cannot grasp Christ with our thoughts or our reason, and therefore faith can't be our own work. We're drawn to Christ even though we can neither feel him nor see him. What a gift God gives to us in our faith. So let's pray. Thank you, uh, Heavenly Father, for this day. Thank you for everybody seated around this table and for the faith that you have given to them. Um, we pray that as we learn more about your servant, Martin Luther, that we would be um, deep, more deeply convicted in our own faith um, and drawn closer to do the work that you want us to do, the work that you allow us to do and enable us to do, and that is to believe in your Son. So be with us today as we study and learn um, guide our discussion that all of it might uh, might be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, any thoughts or questions about the first couple of videos that we've watched about Martin Luther? Okay. Then we will move on to the third and see what is new. Around the time of St. Augustine, about the 4th century AD, people in the church had already been talking about purgatory. But purgatory had not been defined until the Council of Lyon in 1274 AD. The council adopted the term purgatory for this place of purgation. It got started not originally as a church doctrine, but it kind of grew during the Middle Ages uh, and was then solidified as official church doctrine. It was taught by the church that there were two consequences of sin, guilt and punishment. And the guilt one could take care of by uh, making a confession to a priest uh, but then came the second consequence, and that is punishment. The idea was that when you went to confession and confessed your sins, the priest absolved you, but that absolution only covered the guilt for your sins. It did not cover the punishment for your sins. You still had to work off the punishment. And that punishment had to take place either here in this life or in purgatory. And the idea that the prayers of the church could be useful in getting others who had died already out of purgatory came into play. And so by Luther's time, the doctrine of purgatory was accepted on both an official and a popular level. was Leo X, and this man needed money for himself and for the church. Pope Leo had a big building project. He was building St. Peter's in Rome, and he needed to finance that. In addition to that, the Pope was a secular landowner and was undertaking wars in Italy. In addition to that, the whole church hierarchy had to be supported, and so therefore Leo needed money badly. 
Uh, and uh, like a lot of people was building projects, he uh, got creative. And so he resorted to this terrible business that should never have happened again in the church of a kind of religious payola by which the Pope would sell the office of bishop or archbishop or cardinal to the highest bidder. Uh, in addition to that, he's going to have to have much more money to build St. Peter's and for this reason, he institutes the sale of indulgences. Albrecht of Mainz was a very important person. He was the younger brother of the Elector of Brandenburg. He had three important church offices at a very young age, and he had to pay off uh, some payments, we won't say bribes, but some payments uh, to the papacy, which is being advanced to him by the Fuggers Bank in Augsburg. In turn, he's going to allow an indulgence sale in his territories. And so he was hopeful that uh, through the selling of this indulgence, he could uh, get his head above water and, uh, and, and get out of debt. The indulgence was a plenary indulgence, which was the best of all kinds of indulgences to get, because it meant that whatever amount of time you had to spend in purgatory was altogether taken care of by this. It was fully done. Although an indulgence is a piece of paper, what gave it its power to shorten one's time in purgatory? <coughs> well, we've got to go back a few centuries. In the 11th and 12th century, the church developed this idea of the treasury of merit. And contained in that treasury were the merits of Christ, the merits of the Virgin Mary, and the extra good works and merits that were done by the saints. Uh, all this was, again, for your salvation. Uh, the technical term was super irrigation. Now, according to Rome, then, this treasury of merit was under the authority of the Pope. He alone possessed the keys to unlock its merits for you and for me. And one of the ways that he did that, then, was with the granting of the indulgences. They're not forgiveness of sins on paper, but they are indeed forgiveness, official forgiveness by the church in the time you have to spend in purgatory to atone for those sins yet that aren't completely wiped out by God's forgiveness. So the indulgence would enable you to escape additional months, years, eons in purgatory if you then paid for the indulgence itself. To the common people, of course, they thought this was probably paying for the forgiveness of sins, which it was not. It's a complicated story as to who got permission to sell indulgences where, but the end result was that in the neighboring territory next to where Luther was, uh, there was an indulgence seller. And uh, he was uh, quite convincing. John Tetzel, a Dominican monk, was the chief indulgence salesman in Luther's part of the world for this plenary indulgence. So how do you get an indulgence sold? Well, you make promises. You make promises that when you buy this indulgence, your Grandma Schmidt, who you fear is suffering so much in, in purgatory, will now be freed from her suffering. And you know, you didn't treat Grandma the way you should have. You were so mean to her, and you, did, you were kind of cheap at her funeral. This is a chance for you to make things right. And it would be quite a media event. He would have people with him that would stage a little parade, and he would make a little show and show people a big treasure chest. And he would even have his sales pitch, as it were, for the indulgence. He would say, think about your, your friends, your loved ones, your, your mother, your father, there in purgatory, in the fire, 
Well, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul up from purgatory springs. And it was you know, playing on the emotions of the people and playing on their sensitivity. And the people bought it. They, they yes, I can do something for her. I'll do it. And it was, Tesla was good. And if you're afraid of where you're going to go after you die, and you want to take some preventive measures, indulgences start to sound attractive. In his zeal, though, to make the sale, he was making theological claims which are totally outlandish. And this is what really got Luther frosted. When Tetzel wanted to sell his indulgences in Wittenberg, Frederick the Wise would not let him do it because he had his own relic collection. I mean, 17,000 relics there of varying kinds. And a relic essentially is any old thing with some kind of connection to the church. Um, whether they were true or not, <laughs> well, you can decide how credulous you are, but you would have, you know, a, a piece of the jawbone of Samson or a, a corner of the tunic of Mary. I, you know, I'm just making this stuff up, but this is the kind of caliber of most of these relics. And so if you would go and see these relics and view them and offer certain prayers before certain relics, you could earn forgiveness. And it was said that if you actually viewed all the relics in Frederick's collection, you could earn almost two million years off of purgatory which is pretty extraordinary, which also tells you, wow, people were really having a long time in purgatory, which is part of the reality as well. But where did all this come from? How do people come up with all this? You know, that's a great question, and I really have no idea, you know, who, who was having the authority to say this is what it's decided. But it was all just part of that elaborate, exceedingly complicated system that was going full blast in Luther's time. So Tesla sold in Jutherbach, a village across from Wittenberg, and there was a big traffic back and forth to give those indulgences. The first Luther knew about Tetzel being in Jutterbach was the fact that fewer and fewer were coming to confession, and some were even showing their indulgences to Luther, asking him for a kind of a second opinion. Are these things really worth the power that they're claimed? In fact, one of the claims was that these indulgences were so strong they would achieve forgiveness for somebody who violated the Blessed Virgin Mary herself. Luther, of course, was indignant at any such thought. People were coming to him and saying, I don't need to go to confession and absolution because I have a plenary indulgence uh, sold by the Archbishop of Mainz, the primate of Germany. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to think about buying an indulgence for someone who's in purgatory and shortening their time there. Luther had issues with that. But then someone had the brilliant idea, well, why do I have to wait until I'm dead? And so now you could have a person who had the resources, who could buy an indulgence and have the guarantee of the church that his sins were forgiven no matter what he did. It's like sin-free card. And that's what was going on. And Luther at first did not know all of the political and economic and ecclesiastical machinations behind those that sale of indulgences uh, but he did know that his people were being told essentially that they had to pay for god's mercy and he thought that was wrong luther not only preached against indulgences he decided that he wanted to have a debate about them so he did what any good academic would do at the time. He drew up a set of theses on the power and efficacy of indulgences, 95 statements or propositions for debate written in Latin, which he posted on October 31st, 1517. He was hoping to have a learned discussion, 
course, it didn't quite end there. But he sent a copy to Albrecht of Mainz, who in turn sent a copy to the Pope. But people got a hold of those theses and translated them from Latin into German, and pretty soon they were being published widely on Gutenberg's new printing press, and all of a sudden, Luther's becoming quite the cause celeb in Germany. Luther's 95 Theses began with these words. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Here are just a couple more of the 95 Theses. Theses 27, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Or Thesis 82, if the Pope could redeem souls from purgatory for the sake of money with which to build a church, why did he not free all the needy souls for the sake of Christian love? October 31st, 1517, when the 95 Theses are posted, Luther's still a good Catholic. Even though he started to challenge and wonder about things, he's still fully devoted to the church. He wanted to have some questions asked about the right practice, especially of a guy like Tetzel, who was really making a mess of what the church had established. He's not trying to say, hey, it's all about justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's not there yet. But what is there is his growing awareness that someone's really rotten in the church. and. The Pope needs to do something about this. It was his surprise to realize that the Pope wasn't ready to do something about it, but was actually complicit in all. That was part of the realization Luther had to come to. And in 1517, it's not there yet. He's still naive enough to think that once he points these things out, the church will clean it up its act. When Luther arrived in Worms on April 16th, he found massive crowds hailing him. So he was greeted as a conquering hero, the German Hercules, who had arrived. That'll turn the folks. Shake him up. That'll turn him on. What do you think? <laughs> Don't know how much it cost me to become a pastor. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, actually not, really, <laughs> but not in that way. I'm trying not to kill you. you know, I don't want you tripping on this stuff. All right, thoughts? And, you know, what kind of jump that? There we go. There was really no scripture being taught in that regard. Yeah, it's not like they could point to the biblical basis for indulgences, right? Yeah. Or even purgatory. Yeah. That was a challenge. I'm going to push this thing around. It's not. Excuse and, me while I break the TV. And the Catholic Church still preaches purgatory, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's still a thing. What else? <laughs> Mary, the look on your face is priceless. <laughs> Follow the money, right? I mean, that, ultimately, that's what it's about. Well, when Luther got upset about the indulgences, it reminded him of Christ cleaning out the temple. Oh, yeah, yeah, which, again, was a money thing. It was a money problem, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I like the fact, you know, that Luther's 
outrage at the whole thing was basically based on the notion that, that we have these gifts from God and who are we to charge for them, right? That whole notion of the treasury of merits and, and all that kind of business, he was like, what? If, we, if, if that's a thing, okay, we should be giving it away. I, I like that quote about, you know, why didn't he free all of the, all of the poor people out of Christian love? Um, and so, you know, Martin comes at it and he's kind of like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? And, and I think it was important, Dr. Bierman, I think it was, made the point that he was, he was still naive enough to think that if he brought it to the Pope's attention, he would, everything would get cleaned up, not realizing that the Pope was actually kind of complicit in the whole thing. He was, he was part of the machine that was doing all this stuff. Ken? Did it have any relationship to tithing? No, no, I, not well, at all. Not that at all. tithing was different, separate yeah. uh, from the indulgences. Yep, yep. Tithing was, was all about sort of your obligation to support the church. Yeah. Indulgences was an opportunity. I mean, in a sense, maybe there's a relationship because you could see it as an indulgence as a way to go above and beyond. Above, yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, you can see how this is being misused and misunderstood that people are like, woohoo, I'm on indulgence. I can do anything I want to now. I don't have to come to confession or anything. And, and you know, we, who was it who said there, there's no scripture going on here? Who said that? Well, it was you. Yeah, it was you, Ken. So, so like, this is Romans chapter 5 and 6. Paul goes off on this whole thing where he talks about this amazing grace of God, that we have forgiveness for our sins, and isn't that incredible, and, and wow, and he, and he leads into the next chapter and goes, so what then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And his point is this. If this grace that God shows us in forgiving our sins is so amazing, maybe we ought to sin a lot. <laughs> and if we sin a lot, then God's grace really shows up and people will understand how awesome he is, right? And he says, no. <laughs> I think it's usually translated, by no means. We have died to sin. That's not what this is about. And so indulgences just kind of trample all over that. It's like, well, here, buy one of these. You can do whatever you want to Go on sinning. Grace may abound. You paid for it. Why not? Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's the. You're right. It's just sort of wandering way off the path, and that really is what incensed Martin Luther. And then the, the one part that says um, that they would pay the penance for two million years. Yeah. Well, what happens after the two million years? <laughs> Was that enough? You're gonna come back and right. pay some more. Right. Ooh, yeah. What if it wasn't enough? Then, then you got to. Right. I guess does the I wonder if there was a chart listing sin by sin, how much time in purgatory. You know what? What was the? I mean, I'm just. I'm being snarky, but you know, seriously. I mean, who could you? Who comes up with these numbers? Was that where the rosary beads came in? No, the rosary beads were really an aid for prayer. It was a way to kind of focus your attention of your. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it was just. It was a. It was a focus aid. As you pray, it allowed you to kind of keep track of where you were in the prayer. Do so. any other churches use um, I don't know the answer Russian, to that. I, conceivably, the Eastern Orthodox might, yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I know it's not in Lutheranism, but I'm just curious because all that came after 1,000 when the Orthodox When they split, left. yeah, which is do about they, 1100 AD. Do they have purgatory? And, and 
I'm not sure. I, that's a really good question. Um, the, the split, so what he's referring to is the split between the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which happened in about 1100 AD. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. But I was not aware that purgatory and that whole doctrine didn't, you know, kind of bubble up until about 1200, 1250, I think they said. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Robert, I'll find out. I think when Luther opened the Bible and started reading it, um, the Latin Bible, um, he saw the major differences between what was said in the Bible and what was actually practiced. And that insight provided him a lot of um, knowledge to go ahead and write those 95. Yeah, I mean, certainly he, he was better informed than most. About what the Bible actually said, and and that I think was a that was a key component to his discomfort with the whole thing because he, he it was it was a sense something's not right about this you know he knew that that felt contrary to what he was reading in Scripture, and that gave him some heartburn, um, and and his whole intention was to have a discussion you know it was like this doesn't feel right let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that he had poked the bear in the process. Yeah. And, and that's what Jesus ran into trouble with the Jews because <laughs> tradition to them was law. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they had, know, and, and, and they, they had wandered wrong. off the path. Yeah. They were yeah. wrong, and he pointed that out. One of the things that I really I think is important to understand about the Pharisees to that point is, is you can see how the Pharisees got where they got. And, and it, it was actually out of good intentions, right? So for the Pharisees, they looked at God's law and they said, Phew, this is good stuff. We need to obey. He's God. We're sure that he's right. And so in order to make sure that we comply with this, let's build a fence around it. Let's add some rules that will keep us from getting too close to transgressing God's law. So they created some additional rules that were just sort of the protective barrier, Right. And then, and then the worry was, well, that's still pretty close. You know, maybe we ought to create some more rules to keep people back a little bit further because we don't want them to. And, and, you know, that kind of goes on over a period of time. And what you wind up with is a system that the Pharisees were fully bought into that was, that suddenly was not about the, the good that God wants to do for you. It's about making sure that we don't ever get close to that. And it was all about the laws and not about the heart of what God was giving us. A great example of that, and some of you may have heard me talk about this before, um, the, the Ten Commandments given to us in two places. They're in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Um, of course, they're given to us in Hebrew. Hebrew has seven different ways to negate something. Okay, um, Grammatically, I mean, we hear the translation of the Ten Commandments, and it's you shall not, you know, you shall have no other gods, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, you shall honor the Sabbath day by keeping holy. And, and it has kind of the character of a of finger being wagged at you, right? You shall not do that. You shall not do that. Grammatically, actually, the way they're written, it's you will not do this. You will not do that. You will not. And and I think the, the sense of it for me is this is God painting a picture of what it looks like when you're in a right relationship with him. Because when you're when you understand God is God, I am not, he's the creator, I'm the creature, 
and I'm, I'm seeking to follow his way. Well, what does that look like? Well, you won't have other gods, and you won't take his name in vain, and you'll honor the Sabbath day because you want to gladly hear his preaching and learn from it. You'll honor your father and your mother, you know, all those kind of things. And so there's that sense of this being, listen, this is what it looks like when everything's right. But for the Pharisees, it became, whew, we don't want to do the things that we're not supposed to be doing, so what rules can we put around that? And it became this whole series of rules, and then it was all about the rules. And it was never about the heart of God and the goodness that he had for us. So, Robert. I think um, based on what you said earlier, you know, the Old Testament is where God is very, takes some very aggressive moves against his people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Returns them into the, uh, place them into the, um, in, into the, um, that area yeah. that was uh, hard to survive and took them 40 years. Yeah, threw them out in the wilderness and mm -hmm. yeah, so, waited for a whole generation to die. Yeah. Right. And yeah. also, uh, he was like a, uh, a warrior guard. guard. Mm -hmm. You know, he says, go wipe these people out and they did. Right. But, um, to me, he was like a vengeful God. Yeah. Yes, and um, he's not, by the way. But keep going. I, I know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you read it, it's this. You can of take that away from it, sure. Yes. Yeah. And if you don't do this, this is what happens to you. And you know, mm -hmm. remember when the people when, when Moses went up to the hill? Yeah. Um, what was it, Mount Sinai? Or yeah, something? Right. When he came back down, they were they had a a, a, a cow. And they were praying to it. No, that really the golden calf. God. Yeah. And, Yo. And, and yes, he smite a lot of people. But the thing is that he was, if you look throughout the Old Testament, he was like, uh, he took a, a revenge easily. Well, he's not taking any guff, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, yes. He, but, but see what... But I, when Jesus came, right. it's like a total change was made. Yeah. So uh, I'm... I would soften that a little bit because yeah. I, because it is the same God. I mean, he's it the is. same yesterday, today, tomorrow. And, and what you see in the Old Testament really is, a, is, in a sense, a setup for Jesus to come. Okay, mm -hmm. When you look at the Exodus and all that kind of stuff and everything that's going on there, um, it, it's about God showing, in a sense, that he tried to do it with us, but that wasn't going to work. Um, you, you may have heard the old phrase, you know, he was able to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but he could never get Egypt out of the Israelites. I mean, yeah. just everything that he was trying to accomplish in the Exodus got screwed up by the Israelites. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, they fell short and, they, you know, he was like, don't have other gods. And they're like, oh, look, other gods, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, like, I, I think a lot of that is laid bare. Yeah. So that you kind of understand when Jesus comes He's going to do kind of the same thing, and yet he's going to be successful. So the, they're taken out of bondage in Egypt. We're taken out of bondage to sin. So it's like the same story, only grown bigger. And, and where Israel was unable to accomplish this based on what they did, Jesus, Son of God, actually comes and pulls it off. And he does it. And so it's, it's, a, it's a setup, as I said, to kind of put what Jesus is doing into some kind of perspective so we know what's happening. What's cool about the Old Testament, in some sense, is God's love is there. I mean, it's always present. You see it throughout everything, but it's subtle. It's really subtle. And you see it in, in things like, you know, um, punishing the, the children of the sinners to the 
to the third and fourth generation, or to the thousandth, you know, thousandth generation or something, and those who love me to the third and fourth generation or something like that. And you're like, wow, he goes easy on those who love him and care about him. And, and you see God's provision in creation and in, you know, all these different ways. But it's subtle. You're right. It is. And the Israelites just didn't get it. No. <laughs> no. And he called and, them and, you know, I mean, yeah, stiff, stiff neck people. people. To your point about the, the, the golden calf apostasy, yeah. one of my favorite twists in Scripture is if you go in there and you read that. Because like, like Moses is up on the mountain with God, right? And he's up there with him, and, and God's, I mean, you almost kind of visualize it. God's looking over Moses' shoulder going, oh, gosh. And, and, and what happens is, if, and you go back and look, I mean, you catch it in the English, too. What happens is God, all of a sudden, these are my people, right? I brought my people out of bondage and everything. All of a sudden, they're not his people. They're Moses' people. He's like, look what your people have done. <laughs> You better, you know, and, and he's like, get out of the way. I'm going to smite them. I'm done with it. And, and they're your people now. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 hang on. They're your people. And Moses reminds him, you know, he's like, don't forget, you made a promise. There's a covenant. <laughs> but yeah, Pam. I looked up the, about the Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, which one? Indulgence. I love Google. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Um, Believed to be a Catholic corruption of its own theology, the Eastern Orthodox Church eradicated this practice. Really? Throughout its ranks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they did have some funky stuff about selling some permissives, but it was tied to pilgrims okay. going to Israel, and I didn't dive any deeper okay. than that. But yeah. As far as pure indulgences, they also recognized that it was interesting. Okay. Okay. What okay. well, year was that? Um, was it around the 1530? Oh, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If all that's going on at the same time as yeah, the Reformation. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it, um, it says until the 20th century there existed some practice of absolution certificates. But I think the indulgences stuff was yeah. very early, yeah. Yeah. Very early on. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. One of the things I'm just I'll, I'll I'll plant this little seed and we'll just let it sit there. But one of the things that Luther addresses in the Augsburg Confession, I mean that the Lutherans address in the Augsburg Confession is about confession and absolution and what what is involved there and what should not be involved there. And we'll we'll talk more about that because it gets into penance and all that kind of business. What is confession? What's absolution? What's penance about? And how's all, all that play out? I don't think it would make any difference if if the Old Testament came uh, uh, now and had smoke and fire and and did all of that, people would still... Oh, I fear you're right. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't change hearts and minds like Jesus changed hearts and minds with love. (coughs) Right. Well, and again, same God, you know. Yeah. Um, Okay, in the video, Reverend Daniel Preuss... Uh, said, it was taught by the church that there were two consequences of sin, guilt and punishment. And the guilt one could take care of by making confession to a priest, but then came the second consequence, that was the punishment. And the punishment had to take place either here in this life or in purgatory. By Luther's time, purgatory had become a well-established teaching in the church, and everybody took it for granted. It was dreadful, it was terrifying, it was one of those facts of life that Luther, growing up, never thought to question or challenge. What are some things that were considered well-established facts when you were young? 
which aren't held to be true today. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Can you think of anything? Pluto is a planet. What? They're <laughs> dancing and oh yeah, dancing and, and uh, yeah. Oh golly, I mean there's lots of <laughs> yeah. Okay, some doctor quote doctrinal kind of things. And no marijuana. I mean. <laughs> Don't get me started. No, <laughs> As a former police officer. <laughs> well, what else? Things that, that were, everybody said were true when you were a kid, and now they realize they're not. The age no of the earth keeps getting longer and longer. Was that oh, the age of the, yeah. 6,000 years? 14 billion? Who knows? Somewhere in there. What, what were you going to say, Pam? There's no free lunch. There's no free lunch. Uh, uh, now there kind of is. Every Everybody was, I mean, you were taught growing up, especially yeah. our parents and grandparents' generation. Yeah. You worked or you didn't eat. Yeah. I mean, there was no concept of somebody else should take care of you. There well, was no welfare system. Right. I was going to say, and Social Security even only dates back to like the 1930s or so, right? right? I mean, so it's poor farm, yeah. yeah poor farm. Or, but the church gave up the obligation, didn't they? To do what? To feed the poor. Absolutely not. No, we still do no. that aggressively. Well, I'm just yeah. saying. Uh, yeah. That was the only place. But, so, but if, you did, if you did go to somebody to ask for help, that was shame. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. And you did it very quietly and secretly. And now it's very openly and accepted. That's right. What else? Really Anything else? Those old programs, uh, 50 to 100 years ago. Yeah. The church was the only welfare system. It's true. That, is true. that was all that existed. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, hospitals grew out of the church, too. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. And, and the education system was hugely shaped, in large part, by the Reformation, actually. Um, so, the, you know, the public education system that we have today, you can actually trace back to Christian education um, during Luther's time. And that's right. why everybody went to church. Why? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you went there for community. You went there for yeah. worship. Yeah. It was expected. Everybody yeah. went to church. Oh, so there's a big thing that's changed, right? Yes, that, that, big thing. The yes. assumption that kind of we're generally if you, Christian. If you didn't, there was something yeah. bad wrong with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In our legal system, uh, they they make you pay for your sins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? So. Yeah, that's kind of always been the case. But. The pain, the pain. So, so The legal system then was a lot harder than it is. It, absolutely. What is something that people today consider just a fact of life that would have been unthinkable 50 or even 20 years ago? Live together. Well, you, yeah, that, for sure. That's the change that's happened. What else? I get married. Yeah. My, oh, well, I tell my grandkids, uh, we used to, on Sunday, the uh, stores were closed. Yeah. And, and then they yeah. Had a hard time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites was <laughs> when I told my kids that, that we used to, we used to um, sign up to have a, a DVD and Netflix would send us to us in the mail and we would watch it and then put it in an envelope and send it back. And they were like, Netflix never did that. <laughs> yeah, they did. How about just this, right? Just the cell phone. When I was a kid, that, that was not a thing. You didn't go out on Friday and mom would call and check and see where you were or what was going on. I mean, Friday evening came around and I was like, I'll be home at 11. And I was gone and mom knew not where I was. 
That's completely different. They had party lines. You have party lines. <laughs> yeah, so just the way communications has grown. But there was a great thing I saw on Facebook that said, if you could go back 50 years and tell somebody something that would just blow their minds, what would it be? And, and it would be, I have a device in my pocket with which I can access the sum total of human knowledge, and I use it to watch videos of cats. <laughs> They wouldn't believe you. They wouldn't believe me. Yeah. Um, so what? This gets a little bit closer to what we're talking about. What accepted opinions of our culture prove challenging to the church, especially as it shares the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I would say your example is one of those. Yeah, that's right. Um, that, that the whole notion of God's plan for marriage and and sex well, is completely law. yeah. Was against the law. culture is and has completely gone against. It. Jail for that, right. and then if you were homosexual, you got put into a mental institution. Right. right. So I was big part, shift in the I culture. Worked, I worked with, a, with that one time. What else? Yeah. My body, my choice. Oh, my body. Oh, the my whole. My body is the temple of Christ. Right. Right. Yeah. The whole abortion thing and and all of that stuff dramatically changed in the last 50 years, for sure. Mm -hmm. What else? Drugs. Drugs? Okay. It's, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, there was a drug problem. Right, right. Or maybe there was and we just never knew about it. <laughs> right. That was the thing. Yeah, I mean, it was, we, it was shameful. The world may have had a lot of shootings, mm -hmm. but we didn't know about it because we didn't have that Information coming oh, yeah. in right. automatically on a phone. So, and I mean, to make clear, some of these things actually are better now, right? Because we're able to know about things and address them and deal with them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought this business of people being so offended about different everybody's things. offended about everything, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it carries it way too far. Yeah. 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 Well, cancel culture and all that kind of business too. Yeah. Cancel culture. The, the you know the idea that people should be fired from whatever their thing is if they say something inappropriate. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. yeah, politically yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, from that when I was a kid, you know, uh, back then the majority controlled everything. Mm -hmm. Today, the minorities get all these goofy laws and mm -hmm. stuff passed. I mean, it may be a very small group of people that objects and demonstrates and stuff mm -hmm. all the time. They wind up controlling a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe 5% yeah, of the people so are left. Shifts in the balance of power, so to speak. Yeah. They call that what the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, purgatory. That was fake news. What? Fake news. Well, you know, there was. That's another thing you can tell people that kids would never understand, right? Once upon a time, there was a guy named Walter Cronkite, and he would tell you the news, and it was just the news, and you got to make your own decisions about things. Yeah. My, my mom called him Daddy Cronky. She loved Walter Cronkite. That guy was awesome. Yeah, right? Right? So purgatory, this whole notion of purgatory, made sense to sinners who were crushed by guilt, who felt bad about what they had done. They were like, yeah, I know, I, I haven't done enough and I can't make up for it. And, and so I, I, I get it that God would do this. It would work today. It probably would. It, it does. In fact, they still, you can still buy an indulgence. And you still get indulgences. They're given away and they're sold. Um, they still exist. So the problem was that that, that teaching, this idea of purgatory, 
teaches people to look to themselves for the solution instead of looking to Jesus Christ. It becomes about me doing better and, and doing less bad. And, and it's all about me. And, and there's a phrase that Martin Luther uses that I think is really, really helpful. In Latin, it's incurvatus in se, as he's describing our sinful nature. And what it means is, literally translated, curved in on oneself. And so our sin has that effect on us, that, that the most important person because of my sinful nature is me. And it becomes all about me. And what the gospel is about and what Jesus is about is turning that perspective back out to where it should be on God and on our neighbor. Okay? And purgatory has the opposite effect. So when Jesus said, it is finished, as he hung on the cross, he wasn't talking about his life. He was using a Greek term, tetelestai, which means paid in full. And what was paid in full was the debt for our sins. That was what was finished, was, was that... Sinners who didn't who believed in Christ would not be held accountable for that anymore. He had paid the debt. It was finalized. Um, so how do those words, it is finished, prove the doctrine of purgatory is unreal? If it's finished, if it's paid in full, it's done. Let me ask you a question. Go ahead. In in uh, <coughs> no, don't ask me what do I think? Okay. You're pretty good about that. I might. Uh, no, but uh, if, if the Bible had been more freely available mm-hmm. to all people mm-hmm. and the words could have been seen, mm-hmm. actually read, and they were translated properly, put that little piece in, yep. would, do you think that would have made any difference? I do. Uh, in people's perception and understanding. Purgatory. And always indulgences. Hmm. Well, people don't read the Bible much today. No. So We're that's actually a really interesting point. Except some still believe it, right? What's that? Except some still believe it. And it's sure. But it didn't and change the Ten Commandments. And certainly the Bible's accessible. It changed the Ten Commandments. But you're also talking about a, a Catholic faith who does not promote people reading their own Bibles. Well, that's they true. still promote, uh, we're going to tell you what you need to know, so you don't need to bother. You know, I, certainly the the Bible has proliferated in a way that it never had in Luther's day. I mean, I think it's, prob- it's the best-selling book every year is the Bible. Um, it's pretty safe to say that every household pretty much has one um, accessible to them. Whether they read it or not is a different question. Um, so the accessibility of it, I mean, there's plenty of bad doctrine floating around. I mean, even we've been beaten up on the Catholic Church, but I mean, you know, there, there's, there are plenty of church bodies that have some really wacky doctrine. Yep. Well, and they usually have their own version of the Bible, too. So. True, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, on some level at least, hopefully their growth is tamped down by the fact that there's enough people looking at them going, that's not right. <laughs> you know, so so on some level, hopefully, yeah, more people would have looked at it and said, oh, I'm not sure about that. You know, and I, I think to your point, Jane, one of the biggest challenges in the church today is biblical illiteracy that, I, you know, you may have noticed it in my preaching. I spent a lot of time kind of given the context for things and given some backstory so that we can dig into what's going on, because a lot of people just don't have it. 
You know, they just they don't they don't know the stories of the Bible like they used to, and they don't have this familiarity with the overall narrative arc of Scripture and what's going on there and how it all points to, to Christ. And so, weirdly, <laughs> the the common availability of the Bible has not it hasn't it, it's maybe shifted that problem but not solved it which is I interesting just the newness of it at that particular right point. right yeah. certainly yeah. probably yeah 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 i agree with that and and i think you know that's one of those it, an inflection point if you want to call it to look back at history and say clearly gutenberg's printing press had a huge impact on the world and 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 the the kind of the focus of all of that was the bible because that was one of the first books that became more widely available, and it, and it it did it rocked the world. No doubt about it. Hurt hmm? It certainly would wouldn't have hurt Absolutely, hurt yeah, hurt absolutely hurt. that, absolutely that. So the biggest thing is people don't read. And right. Because people don't read, they don't they can't become familiar with the word of Christ. Right. And a lot of that is is due to just kind of culture shift. You know, this this. We're in what I would probably call a post-Christian world. Um, it, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you could look around, and, and generally speaking, most people were Christian, at least insofar as they came to church regularly, whether that was because they believed it or because it was a country club, you know, whatever. But they had familiarity with the teachings of the church. They were, you know, on the balance, most people understood Christianity. And we've moved beyond that so, we lost the kids, haven't we? Some. I mean, some. You know, uh, yeah. unless you really learn it as a child. Well, look at the adults that look back. I mean, yeah. the adults, but they it's, had one, it's one thing to read it, but when you're reading it with no other input from anybody else, you're going to get your own interpretation mm -hmm. on it. Yeah. Yeah. So look, look at the congregation and how many people are in a Bible study. That's right. No, if it's free, you know what it's worth. I mean, <laughs> leaders, exactly. leaders, of the, leaders of the church don't go. Yeah. No they don't content. attend Bible study. Interestingly, the Bible had something to say about that, right? That's right. The Ethiopian Very eunuch definitely. who's reading it, and Peter gets in the, in the carriage with him, and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? He goes, how can I, unless somebody explains it to me? Yeah. So, well, yeah. Because, the, you know, we, as Lutherans, too, we can fall in the trap where, you know, like Luther wrote the Catechism, well, that's for pastor to teach Seventh and Eighth. But Luther wrote that for parents. So you, yeah. You know, yeah. In a simple way, as the head of the household should teach his family. Because yeah. if you don't do it at home, yeah. Yeah, you cut down your chances. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And All we, right. We have a responsibility to help to teach. And encourage the kids in our congregation to be in Sunday school. I've done some openings in Sunday school, and one time when I when we had a very good crowd because it was around Christmas, I asked them how many disciples there were. There wasn't a single child in that room who could tell me. Really, they knew by the time you were done. I bet. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. But Thank you. There, and there are some of them. <coughs> You would have thought by their age they yeah. would not only know, not just from church, but because it needs to be taught at home. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. read, read, you know, you can read bedtime stories out of a Bible children's book just as easy as you can read 
some of the other stuff. It's true. But we all have a responsibility, even if we don't have kids, to encourage other people and encourage the kids that are around to go to class. How many of us say something to the kids about, hey, good to see you Sunday morning and being at church, or thank the parents for bringing their kids to church. That is something that all of us in this room could do. Yeah. Robert. One of the things that I observe in life from being in the church since I was little mm -hmm. is that you really, when you're when you're a child, you really and growing up in the church, you really uh, immerse yourself over a period of time. Mm -hmm. You know what who Jesus is and mm -hmm. who God is. And, but as you get into college age, you start veering off, and then you get your first job, and then you're so overwhelmed by earning a living that you don't come to church as often as, but you try, you know. You try, but you're not as dedicated as as when you were a teenager. And then as you get into your, like, 45 or so, getting towards your 50, and you're coming back to the church. Yeah. Because you remember what you learned. The other thing God will do to bring you back is give you a wife and kids. <laughs> That'll bring sure, you back. It's actually kind yes, of cool. But, um, <clears throat> yes, true. Yeah. And yeah. bringing out the kids and teaching them about uh, the Bible and stuff like that, but... Uh, and they will go through that same process also. Yeah. Not all of us follow it closely, but yep. something similar. But towards the end, we all come back to the church because we remember what we learned as children. Yeah. But if the children don't don't go to church, if their parents never brought them to church, it's it's a huge yeah. gap. Well, it's been said we're one generation from the death of Christianity, right? If, if parents don't pass it on to their kids... Yeah. Christianity is going to last forever. Oh, no doubt about that. Yeah, <laughs> you know about the death no. of yeah. Christianity. Yeah. Please, no. it's not going to. Well, no, it won't. But I mean, that that would be the thing that we do. But we're not going to go to church. Is if people don't if people but don't teach their children. That's the thing too. Where this twenty to fifty years ago. Right. 20 to 50 years ago, there's probably not a single person in here that their parents said, "You're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you do it." And now it's like. Let's let them make their decision. Mm. Yeah. Again, at, a cultural at, shift in parenting. At 10 yeah. years old, make yeah. their decision. Yeah. Do they know? <laughs> the, I, want, yeah. I want my kids to make their own decision about religion. And it's like, yeah. well, you feed them, don't you? Because you know that food is important to them. Why don't you give them faith, too? Well, and my comeback is, how are they going to know what to decide if right. they don't know anything about it? If you haven't exposed them to it. That's a good thing. I got right. questioned one time, and then by my daughter, who said, "How many times have you read the Bible through?" Ooh. Ooh. Now, you want to go tell somebody about it? How many times have you read it? Have you read it at all? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I won't go any further than that. Yeah. <laughs> but reading the Bible and understanding it, like she said, if you don't discuss it among people of similar minds, you don't learn as much. Right, yeah, and the danger is you wind up in your own kind of weird misunderstanding word. of what's going it on. It is God's word. Absolutely, and, and it's powerful. It will not return right. That's right, it's powerful. That's All right. You may not understand it. There's lots more in the sheets. I'll just I'll leave that as an exercise for the reader when you go home. I, I love this discussion. I think it's helpful and good, and um, I always appreciate that we talk around the table. I think that's good. Um, let's pray. 
thank you, Lord God, for the blessing of faith and for bringing us together in this place. Um, just for the faithfulness of the people around the table and their, their desire to be close to you and to learn from you and to hear your word. Um, we pray as we go forth from here that you would guide and lead us in everything that we do, um, that it might be pleasing to you, but more importantly, that it might bring glory to your name. Um, so we place all of that before you and ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.